You're listening to Bodyful, a podcast that explores the wonder and complexities of living in this human form and how we can engage in an ongoing practice of bodyfulness to become more fully at home in ourselves and in the interconnected web of Gaia, the living earth. I'm your host, Valerie Martin, and I'm the founder of the Gaia Center for Embodied Healing, where we support folks in their growth and healing work with somatic psychotherapy and embodiment practices. We hear all the time about the importance of being mindful, and it's time to invite our bodies to the party. Welcome to Bodyful. Welcome back to the podcast. It's been a while since I've recorded an intro while walking outside. In fact, I don't know that I have recorded an outside intro for any of the new podcast episodes so far. So here I am. You'll hear some chirping and maybe some car noise in the background. Um, I am really excited to share today's conversation with you with... Rachel Lewis and Paula Scatoloni, they created a model called Embodied Recovery, which is really designed to assess and treat eating disorders in a much more, as you guessed, embodied way. Because you would think that being an illness of both the mind and body, indisputably, that it would be sort of a given that the body would be heavily involved in the recovery process with eating disorders. But historically, that has been not the case. The body has been involved in very limited ways of just like, okay, obviously we need to get your nutrition figured out. Um, We need to make sure that we're monitoring your uh, levels of various things to make sure that you're... um, electrolytes aren't too low, for instance, and get your weight into a healthy range and all of those things. But in terms of the actual process of healing and what happens in the therapy room, the body has been left out for a long time. So um, obviously there's all kinds of wonderful somatic modalities that have um, grown in prevalence and popularity over the past decade or so. And so taking some of those uh, findings, the research, um, biopsychosocial and neurobiological and somatic, weaving all of that together, um, but specifically oriented towards eating disorders, it is so needed. And I'm so glad that these two incredible women um, joined forces to share this, to create and share it. And I did the training with them, the level one training back in 2017 in North Carolina. And so this was my first time reconnecting with them um, since then. And they do have a level two as well, which I am now. Now I go off on my little training rabbit holes and then I sort of always find my way back to the things that are really core um, to my orientation and what I find effective. So Um, I am excited for you to meet them and let me tell you a little bit more about Paula and Rachel. So Paula Scataloni is a licensed clinical social worker and certified eating disorder specialist in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. She has additional training in neuropsychological interventions and is a certified provider of the Safe and Sound Protocol, 
developed by Stephen Porges. Paula has worked in the field of eating disorders for over two decades, providing clinical services and teaching extensively on the etiology and treatment of eating disorders through classes, workshops, professional trainings, and conferences. So obviously Paula co-developed Embodied Recovery with Rachel and she has also she also co-developed the first intensive outpatient program for eating disorders with Dr. Anita Johnston and so many other things that she will share with you in the episode. Rachel Lewis is a somatically integrative psychotherapist, duly licensed in counseling and therapeutic massage and body work. She's a certified advanced practitioner in sensory motor psychotherapy, which I'm also studying now, and has advanced training of 25 plus years of experience in diverse somatic therapies, including craniosacral therapy, energetic osteopathy, oncology massage, and aromatherapy. She began her work with eating disorders and residential PHP and IOP treatment programs and developed the Embodied Recovery Group Therapy Protocol, which became the basis for Embodied Recovery for Eating Disorders model. So Rachel has done a lot of other incredible things as well and has a lot of experience as a teacher and presenter, has a private practice in Chapel Hill. And these two women are both incredible as you will hear in this conversation and you can find all of the links to the books that we discuss and the embodied recovery model at the show notes at gaiacenter.co slash podcast and all that will be linked up as well wherever you are listening to this i hope you enjoy the conversation with paula and rachel Well, thank you for being here. And before we drop in, there's so many things that I'm so excited to talk about, but let's spend a minute just kind of getting into our bodies. Mm-hmm. So eyes open or closed and just kind of allowing yourself to settle in. Feeling the surface underneath you. Noticing how the breath is arriving this morning. the texture of the mind. And just welcoming whatever emotions and sensations are present. Coming into this space together across, across physical space. Mm. And just one more breath together. Mm. Coming back. Mm. And would either of you like to share anything you notice that's present for you right now? Mm. Yeah. I am so grateful that you started with that. Um, I had the great, um, fortune and privilege to spend some time at the beach, um, the Outer Banks of North Carolina just a few days ago. And what I realized was so resetting for me was that, um, 
it helped me bring to 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 sit back in my eyes and orient to a wide horizon and after a year of being on zoom and focusing in this really narrow vision i could feel that i had left a like i had i had literally disembodied from a, a place within me where i sit and being able to have that chance to sit back into another part of who i am when i can hold that perspective of horizon um, just really shifted something for me. And this moment gave me a chance to, to do that again, you know, to kind of just say before, you know, before we kind of go into something, kind of just sit back and, and, and then come forward from there. So that's what I really felt was this opportunity to, to sit back, feel my width, feel the connection that we have by sharing the same the same ground, the same earth, rather than just this cyber connection. So that was really lovely. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. I feel much better. Yeah. How about you, Paula? Thank you. Yeah, I was thinking the same in terms of appreciation. None of our hosts have ever asked us to ground before. So it was sweet and lovely. And um, and I went, you know, straight down into the earth, and and that's my plug-in these days of really feeling that connection and that support um, because we we need all the support we can get right now, frankly, with the way the world is. Um, yeah. And so really plugging in there for that nourishment that's coming from beneath us. And so, and then that allowed me to land more in my heart with both of you. So thank you. It's yeah, lovely. Absolutely. It's really nice. Yeah. I, I'm noticing just smiling wide hearing both of you and also just fluttering um which i think is nervousness combined with a little vertigo which is not a normal experience for me <laughs> um and just hearing that orienting to a wider horizon yes i think we need so much of that when our world is in these little squares and the yeah. idea of plugging into the earth and that earth that's part of what's holding up all of us across our different locations is so powerful. It reminds mm -hmm. me of when I went to see my mom for the first time during COVID uh, in Texas back in like November. And she, she has these big trees in her front yard. And she said, okay, how about we each grab a tree? We'll each hug a tree and then we'll be hugging through their root systems. Oh, nice. <laughs> isn't that great? I'm on That's awesome. <laughs> I love so it. thank you. Thank you both for, for sharing mm. that. Um, and I know a little bit about this from my, my exposure to you so far, but share with our listeners just a little bit of each of your background of what brings you to this work. This work, which work? Wow. <laughs> what? That's a big question, isn't it? <laughs> So, uh, yes, in the intro, I will have shared a little bit about what you're both doing with embodied recovery. So I guess to embodied recovery and or just your your profession, vocation, calling in general for each of you. Sure. Yeah. Paula, do you want me to go mm -hmm. first? Sure. Okay. Um, what has brought me to this? So I think that for me, there's been just this lifelong weaving 
of experiences and trying to make sense of my experiences. And they started with um, you know, being a very body-oriented person. I was kinetic and tactile in the way that I learned and, ex and experienced things, but I was also very um, energetically sensitive. So there was a lot of, um, I think, emotional experience that I had that was only offered an explanation of, you know, how to make meaning of that through sort of psychological terminology. And so I have been studying psychology and the body sort of in almost like, um, like walking one step psychology, one step body, one step psychology, one step body for like most of my life. And I think that, I mean, my undergraduate degree was split psychology and then dance. Um, my professional life was split that way as well. I studied, um, massage and body work for many years. And then I went back to grad school and studied counseling. And it wasn't until I, I got the vocabulary from sensory motor psychotherapy that I felt like I was able to stand on the bridge of those two disciplines and extend outward. And it was, it was from there that I was able to bring, um, to start working with eating disorders and disordered eating, which again, I think is a, um, it exists on the bridge of those two disciplines. It's not one or the other. It is like, it's the intersection of them right in the middle. That's where those things lie. And um, so I've just been kind of weaving and weaving and weaving. And that brought me um, to the, to the, to weave that con the container of embodied recovery for eating disorders. Um, and that's also where, where Paula and I cross paths and we're able to, to, to weave our, our perspectives and our vocabulary and our experiences together as well. Mm -hmm. I don't, did that answer your question? Yeah, absolutely. Great. Okay. I'll go. Um, you, do you want me to start? Yeah, please. Okay. <laughs> um, so my journey started um, somewhat similar to Rachel in that I also had that predisposition of sensitivity, um, but I also had a lot of trauma and a lot of attachment um, trauma and um, sensory processing, you know, a lot of the things we talk about in embodied recovery. And it was when I um, stopped dancing that my eating disorder began. And so my journey is more about um, me trying to make sense of my own recovery, like many people who go into the field um, where I, you know, went off into the eating disorder and then um, kept meeting therapists along the way. I did not do traditional therapy. I really had this, um, I just landed in the right person's lap each time who was attachment-based or trauma-based or something, you know, that helped me along the way so that um, I was able to come back into relationship with my body. And, um, and then after recovering from all my symptoms for many, many years, um, came into 
somatic experiencing training as a therapist. And that's where I really started to um, make sense of what happened to me in the, the neurobiology underneath everything. And so um, even though I knew attachment was important, I knew I'd had therapists that taught from a feminist perspective and a relational perspective. Um, I myself had worked with Anita Johnston who looked at eating disorders through metaphor and we understand that relationships with food were similar to relationships with people, but it wasn't really until I started to get the neurophysiology piece around trauma and then sensory processing. And then from Rachel, I've learned a lot about the attachment piece that I could really see uh, that whole triangle of the intersection of those three pieces and how it impacted my own life, my own recovery. So um, I always feel like, you know, I'm, I'm sort of, um, still my journey has been more about trying to understand myself along the way. Mm -hmm. And that has led me to these different avenues and, um, to, and then somehow clients that needed exactly what I understood would show up in my lap. So it's always been this real reciprocal landing with, I just happen to know the things that they happen to need and then happen to keep learning. And I'm a pretty vicious learner. So I keep going and yes. um, have many, many, many certifications in different <laughs> modalities. Yep, yep. So uh, I have that problem as well. <laughs> <laughs> but it's really for me just about coming home to myself, and this has mm -hmm. been a journey about that. And um, and then I, you know, picked up degrees along the way and made sense of everything mm -hmm. along the way, and then want to share that with other people that are struggling yeah, with that same absolutely. journey. I'm sure y'all hear this a lot, but it, it really is just hearing kind of the, like the puzzle pieces of both of your, your stories and your experience and your passions just fit so well together to be able to create something like this, something like the embodied recovery model. Hmm. I'm so glad when, when, when it makes sense to people, when it is like a, a piece that has mm -hmm. kind of just has been missing that brings things together and just makes it make more sense. You know, mm -hmm. it's very, um, it's kind of magical, you know, to, to, to be able to witness that for somebody when there's like, Oh, now they've got a little bit more purchase, like, you know, on their ground, you know, yeah. it's very, it's, it's a real honor. And it is, I mean, even though I think there's a lot of people pushing for collaboration and integration, I think that the field in general, both in eating disorders and just in general in psychology, psychotherapy, has it just traditionally been a lot of turf wars of like, well, this is the right framework and the right, right. modality. And so, and that, that just, you know, does clients a disservice because it's like, yeah, some of those might be really good, but why not take kind of the best and what makes sense from all of these different angles and kind of weave them together? Right, right. But can I, can I respond to that a little bit? Sure. Yeah. I may yeah. not be phrasing that in a way. Well, that I think fits. it's a, I think it's a really um, important observation and it's something that we even encounter when people are taking our training is that 
lot of times people are coming with like wanting the answer mm-hmm. and you know, like, how do you do this? What is the way to do it? And we're kind of sitting back and saying, there's not one way. What we're hoping to do is to offer a framework that helps provide kind of a center to the hub. Mm-hmm. Um, but from that, so that so that rather than looking at parallel processes or, you know, co-diagnoses or, um, you know, that we're really looking at it, this is, it's, it's radiant. Things radiate from a central idea. Um, and how do we articulate that idea that has so many different expressions, right? And, and with the hope that that then can maybe alleviate a little bit of the whack-a-mole approach to working with people who are, are struggling to find wholeness, right? And that, part of what I heard you describing is this like left, when we have a left brained approach that is very like the gift of that approach is that we can start to differentiate and pull things apart and see individual aspects, which is a really wonderful piece to do. That's like carding the wool so we can weave the individual threads, but the right brained approach is what weaves them together, right? And that um, you can't, it's like, how do you reconcile that? How do you have a left brain approach or left brain treatment of a right brained approach? You know, And, and I know I struggled with that when I went back to graduate school, right? Which is so left brained and I had been immersed in this nonverbal, right brain field of body work and dance. And, you know, and I thought, okay, I, I have to get these two things out of competition. How do I hold this apparent binary of right brain and left brain? How do I hold that in the right brain where they're in service to each other mm-hmm. and they complement each other as opposed to compete? Mm-hmm. And I think that there's like this big movement of trying to move beyond this binary. We see it in gender identity. We see it in racial equity. It's like we have to stop seeing the world through the lens of me and other, self and other, an individual self, as opposed to there's the individual and the collective self. Mm-hmm. I kind of went way on a tangent. All right. There's no, it's it's all good. And there's like five different directions. I was like, ooh. Um, but I will just say really quickly that uh, yes, I completely agree with that because the binary is is dangerous. Might sound dramatic, but um, it's tricky on either side because science is wonderful and all these things Absolutely. that we're learning about polyvagal theory and attachment theory and and all of this is is so critical to helping people heal more effectively, more skillfully. But I think there's this like rejection right now uh, in certain circles of science as too patriarchal, too rigid, too whatever. So then we just go to the other binary of like, we're just going to be all, you know, moon Mm -hmm. cycles and astrology and whatever. 
and throwing out the other side. So the idea of weaving together and, and being in that spectrum, um, I think is really critical, especially for the direction that the field Mm -hmm. is going. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. So did you have anything you wanted to add on that, Paula? No, I just had this image of the head and the heart and this mm-hmm. idea that we're trying to bring together the head and the heart mm-hmm. and the gut yeah. and the gut. Yeah. And that way <laughs> that's where it all lives. The marriage, right? <laughs> yes. Right. Yeah. That right. bridge. <laughs> so I heard one of you, I think it was Paula say, in in one of your interviews that really you're wanting to change the lens from which we view eating disorders. We maybe as a field. Um, so I would love to just hear more about that. Like what's, what's wrong with the old lens or what's not working well. Um, and how is embodied recovery trying to shift that perspective? I can say a few words and you can jump in. Um, and it sort of tags on a little bit to what you were just saying, Rachel, but one of the things that if I could say, I think has has uh, been lost, is being lost, um, is a, a, a move away from the importance of the therapeutic relationship as one of the primary mechanisms for change and the therapist's own embodiment and the therapist's own presence. And we've moved into learning skills and then thinking the skills are actually the treatment and the skills are not the treatment. <laughs> um, because co-regulation has to come before self-regulation. So I think as a field and what we're teaching in the schools is we're, we're missing the boat on how to co-regulate and how to develop that capacity and, and how to know when that's happening and how to, um, especially for clients who have never had that. Um, so that's, for me, one of the things that I think our training does is it starts to ask the provider. And and many people are often surprised when they come to our training, like, oh, I have to, this is about me, huh? (laughs) Like they they have to unpack some things about themselves during our training. And it, it, it can kind of blow people out of the water a little bit because they, they weren't expecting that. Right. And, and then they will go on a journey, right. And, and they may change after taking our training. Um, and they come to an understanding of what it means to be present and to be embodied and where they are embodied and where they're not. Mm-hmm. So that's yeah. one of the things that's very different. And the second one, and then I'll let Rachel kind of jump in as we do. Um, we do start to unwind and go back as far as possible to understand what what sets up a constitution for um, resilience and robustness versus a, a more, I don't want to use the word fragile, but um, where it's just harder to be in the world, you know, more the, and um, there's more s- sensitivity and challenges that come versus this, you know, robustness. And I'm talking specifically about the nervous system and I'm talking about um, the ability to cope and to manage life and transition in and out of um, emotions and relationship and um, and experience life in a in a way that um, w- 
when we have capacity, right, to tolerate the ups and downs of life. And so, so our training, our model starts to ask, okay, well, what makes someone resilient? What are the nuts and bolts of that? And then what makes them a little where they have challenges with that? And, and then they're more susceptible for developing an eating disorder. And so we're going back, we're going back into prenatal world, we're going back into the early childhood, we're going back into the womb of the mother and the DNA and the epigenetics. And, and we're looking at all of that, um, which is not something we've done in the field of eating disorders in the past. We've just said there's a symptom in front. How do I get rid of the symptom? But we're not really curious about the why and what's happened to cause the symptom. Mm-hmm. Do you want to jump in, Rachel? Yeah. Um, when when I heard your question, I I went back into my my experience when I started working with eating disorders, and I would sit in team meetings and I'd hear people discussing. You know, we do like you know consult you know whatever it was team team consultation um, about what was going on, and I just remember this feeling of. <laughs> Like a little bit like, you know, huh? Like something's missing here. There's something about the way we are, we are conceptualizing what is going on for this person that felt to me like we were missing something. And what I eventually felt like I could articulate was that there was such an emphasis on people's, like that the behaviors are being driven by what people thought about their bodies or they, what their thinking was, right? And that we had to combat the eating disorder voice, right? There was like the person and then there was the eating disorder voice. And we needed to silence the eating disorder voice and get them to do these other things. And yes, it's going to be hard. And the skills were about how do you tolerate the discomfort of doing the the thing that the eating disorder voice is telling you not to do. And I thought, we're missing something here. And what was missing was the body, right? It was, what was missing was understanding that the eating disorder voice was coming from a limited cognitive vocabulary to explain a physiological, neurobiological experience, right? It was the best words we had available to explain what was going on here and that the eating disorder is actually not a commentary on the body, but it is the body speaking about our experience of survival, of of attachment, of defense, of neuro, of sensory processing, of regulation and dysregulation, of attachment to um, our, our, in our nuclear family, in our biological origins, but also in the attachment to our community, to our society, right? To existence on the planet, all of these things. And I was like, we are just missing the boat here. So I think embodied recovery for me, it was really an attempt to say, how do we bring the body, the wisdom of the body, the language of the body into the, the conversation, how we understand what eating disorders are? 
Yeah. Thank you for that. Both of you. It's, I'm just thinking that even though I feel like I know a lot of this, but it's so easy to get pulled back into the sort of old traditional way of doing things. Like I'm thinking about conversations like the one you described in your, in your consultation meetings that I've had with clients recently. And it's not to say that some of that doesn't help. It's just, I, it makes me so curious about like why, even when we know we, that, that pull toward the cognitive is so strong. And I wonder if part of it is, you know, from the client's perspective, like they're just trying to make sense of it. And they're like, well, yeah, I mean, this, this voice in my head is telling me to do these things. It's like, it's just kind of taking the, what the conscious awareness in that, you know, sort of prefrontal cortex is. Um, and like that, that makes sense. So then that must be what should be treated or addressed. Right. Right. So I think that, you know, as Paula mentioned, bringing in this understanding of co-regulation is so important. There's also understanding that, um, you know, that co-meaning making that happens early on. And so, you know, if, if what, this actually happened, um, You know, if the words that are given to a child's experience are, um, you're such a picky eater, mm -hmm. right? We use that all the time, picky eater. Um, then that's what they start to, to know about them, that this is about, you know, being picky or it's a control issue, Right. That one is used a lot. Right. Oh, you, you know, she just wants to have control as though like that's a bad thing or she just wants attention as if that's a bad thing uh, as opposed to like a necessary thing. Like what if we were to say when someone is like it is is selective, is saying, no, I I I only want this, not that, you know, and is that, oh, yeah, there's there's something in your body that's, that's telling you this is the, this is the right texture, huh? Mm -hmm. You know, like, oh, you're really aware of the differences between the textures as opposed to you're really picky. Like, oh, wow. What if these things that have the potential of being superpowers, right? And we could then teach you how, what Paula was saying is like, what are the building blocks of resilience that go with this capacity? Wow, wouldn't that be different? That that the meaning that is made of experiences is important. Yes, and that's what builds the top-down process, which is important. We have to understand that, but we also have to be able if we don't if we don't understand the language of the body, which most of us don't. And and I would say, um, how do I label? I don't know, like what the word would be for the sort of this. Um, predominant culture that we live in, right? We could give it so many different names to, to the origin of it. But it's very, you know, from the neck up, right? So it doesn't value, it doesn't understand the language of the body. Mm -hmm. It's like, you know, yeah, we do that for like, we're, yeah, we're sensory motor for the first couple of years, but then 
your left, your left um, hemisphere develops and you develop the frontal cortex and that's the good thing. Like the rest of it is just sort of like, eh, you know, it's just there until you get this better thing as opposed to realizing that, well, that's really just like a tiny layer of, of knowing, mm-hmm. you know? So I don't know if any of that made sense. Yeah. Yeah. I, I was wanting to go off on a tangent, but I'm going to restrain myself <laughs> because I know one of the things that I really wanted to to spend some time with, just because I think they're so beautifully crafted and, and say so much about what you're doing, is going into the foundational principles of, mm-hmm. of your model. So I'm just going to read the first one and then open up for anything else that you want to say or discussion around it. And then we'll go through um, the four that way. So -hmm. the first one, eating disorders and recovery are impacted by bottom-up processes. To fully understand what drives eating disorder behaviors and thoughts, we must expand our relationship with the body based on the current, beyond the current emphasis on genetics, nutritional intake, and psychopharmacology to include consideration of a multitude of life experiences which shape neurobiological development. So there's a lot of words there, but they're all so important. And I think maybe the thing I want to draw attention to, and and then you can go wherever you want to go with it, is the body has always been a part of eating disorder treatment, but in those ways you named of what what's food is coming in or not coming in, what are the the physical behaviors that are happening? What's the, you know, what, what's missing psychopharmacologically? What, how do we need to address the, the brain imbalance? What's going on genetically? But the, the involvement of the body has sort of ended there historically. So mm-hmm. that's what really stands out to me. But is there anything else that either of you want to say about this first principle? Paul, you want to go first? Um, I think we're seeing more and more in the field you know, the people like Dan Siegel and Bruce Perry and the neuroscientists that are saying, um, we, we, there's a lot that shapes our experience and supports us in being able to be in the world in a robust way. And so I think what Rachel and I are saying is, yeah, let's, let's look at that and what those pieces are. Mm -hmm. And, um, not that we're going to to blame, but we want to understand and be curious um, to help make meaning, right, of, of what's happening. And, um, and in the fields of trauma and interpersonal neurobiology, we're getting gifted with these models that to help us understand that. And that's what we draw from in our training. We draw from Dan Siegel's work, Alan Shore's work, um, Bruce Perry, people are, that are studying trauma physiology, and we um, pull that together in a coherent way and, and serve it on a platter <laughs> to yeah. you. I think very concretely what we are adding to these considerations are things like epigenetics, pre and perinatal experience. We're looking at the impact of physical um, injury and illness, of trauma, of, you know, of attachment injuries, of posture, of, mm-hmm. of movement patterns, um, and how like all of that is impacting what emotions we have access to and what cognitions 
we hold as true, that truth is this alignment of our neurobiological physical experience, our emotional experience and our cognitive experience, right? What is true for us includes all of those. So we have to look at what has contributed to that physical organization because that's going to impact what interventions are appropriate. If my physical um, organization has been impacted by birth trauma, if I don't include some kind of intervention that is nonverbal, right? Because when I was when I was born, I did not understand things through language. I understood them through touch and through movement. And that's, that's what impacted my, my torque. So I need interventions that can speak the language of the experience that, that formed me. Mm-hmm. And that's why we, we think it's so important to expand this. And, and so that we can add things that build capacity, not just offer things that um, compensate for a lack of capacity. Yeah. Mm. Thank you. And I'm just thinking about, yeah, the, the nonverbal and the many ways of kind of working with all those things that you named from posture to perinatal that I think maybe therapists and um, clients might be intimidated by like, what am I going to do? Am I going to have to like have some reenactment of my birth process (laughs) that it's, there's so many ways of working with these. And I think it's not Mm -hmm. something that needs to be, I mean, yes, anxiety um, is always welcome when we're doing things that are new and unfamiliar, but, but trusting that, you know, if you're working with a skilled therapist, their, their job is to, part of their job is to work on expanding that window of tolerance without going so far out of it, making you do something that feels so uncomfortable and just, you're not ready for it, that it's flooding you because that's Mm -hmm. not going to be helpful. So, right. Yeah. It's, I'm just thinking for instance of if someone comes in and they have sort of a collapsed posture sort of the top down or maybe the traditional approach that a therapist might take is sort of like talking about it. And where did that shame come from? And let's get into the narrative and the memories connected to that shame. And while there might be some value there, it's not going to get that person all the way where they need to go. So then it's kind of like, what can we do to learn about this posture by experiencing it and by experimenting with what's it like to shift it here and move it a little bit. And so Mm -hmm. that's just kind of what was coming up for me thinking about that, the bottom up. Um, Absolutely. Absolutely. Because if, if your beautiful example, if what we're saying is like, okay, yeah, there's that, that, that collapse and there's this shame. And if all we do is say, well, let's change that cognition, right? Then what we're asking the person to do is to swim against the current of their, of their musculature and their fascial holding. And that takes a tremendous amount of energy to keep putting in that cognition, 
grabbing hold of it to pull ourselves up out of collapse, which is really different than if we go, well, let's just go into that, let's study that collapse, let's be with that. What if we bring something right to the front of your body that can catch you? Oh, wow, that's really different, huh? Oh, yeah. And what happens if you push into that now and find that place where your body can find length because it's got this support? And now what is the belief system? Right? That's a really different, that's a different way of, of doing it. And it's not that, that, you know, one is the only thing, but we need to be able to do both. And also to what you said about, you know, a skilled provider. This is why you have a multidisciplinary team, right? Mm-hmm. There are people who speak the language of the body. It doesn't mean that every therapist or dietitian or psychiatrist has to know all these things. They just have to be able to go, you know what? I think right now a craniosacral therapist would be a great addition to this team, mm-hmm. you know, and know how to, con- how to, to talk to them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, the second principle I love, I love this principle, and it says that recovery is an additive process of increasing embodiment rather than decreasing or eliminating behaviors. So Mm -hmm. it's in some ways, yes, it makes complete sense, but it's also very revolutionary. So anything that either of you want to say about what that means to you and why you included it? (sighs) Wow. (laughs) Holly, do you want me to go or you want to start? No, go ahead. Um, Why did I start? So I know that um, I started when I was working in this treatment center, I I often started saying recovery is an additive process. We're adding something, not taking something away. And part of that was, again, to reduce the anxiety. It's like if... I have been doing this thing because this is the, this is how I have managed to maximize my capacity to be in relationship, to guarantee relationship, to to navigate my dis, dis, my neurological dysregulation. And you're telling me to stop doing that? And be like, nah, uh, 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 right? You know, I'm not going to do that. It's like. If I'm carrying a, a big, I don't know, like, you know, just a big bag of, of, of groceries, for example, or, you know, or whatever, you know, and you're saying, well, just put it down, but you don't, you don't bring me a counter to place it on. I'm not going to let go of this. Forget it. Mm-hmm. So the, the additive process was really important to me. It's like, because otherwise what you're doing is you're just asking people to, dissociate from their distress in order to do a thing, mm-hmm. which is, I don't know, it just it seems ridiculous, right? <laughs> I don't know. Um, and then the aspect of embodiment, that, that that's the core, I think really comes from recognizing this is the whack-a-mole. It's like, well, I can stop doing this, but I'm going to start doing this, right? I'm going to grab hold of the next vine, to keep me from falling down this ravine, but because I don't have a foothold, I, I can't find the ground, right? So I'm just going to keep grabbing hold. But if I can actually learn how to stand, then I can let go of this stuff. And um, that it's about how you're in your body, 
that matters. And, and how you're in your body, not the body you have. It's like, how do we help people land in the body they have rather than feel like I have to change this body in order for the body to be accepted in the world, still leaving me somewhere behind. Mm-hmm. I don't know. That's sort of where it came from for me. Paula? Yeah. Yeah, embodiment it, for me is just a different word for having a robust window of tolerance. Mm-hmm. So when we have, and we are, what truncates our window is attachment, trauma, and sensory processing. So when we're able to address those three, we have a robust window and we're embodied, right? So it's it's simple and complicated because we we need to unpack what's going on with all three of those and understand um, and tend to them simultaneously and different providers, right? And so that's the additive process because we're going to bring in different providers because one person cannot do all of that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So... And I think to that idea of like the whack-a-mole that if, if we're, if we're primarily focused on, we have to contain the behaviors, we have to minimize the behaviors, the behaviors are the problem, then yeah, they're just going to reach for an entirely different behavior. So really shoring up that window of tolerance, bringing the ground up underneath them, um, that's going to be the thing that they can carry through in all areas of life, not just in recovery. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I think the third principle we've already kind of spoken Mm -hmm. to, and that really is just kind of this language of the body idea. So the fourth one is that the body is a resource, not an obstacle in the recovery process and may need to be resourced directly through a wide variety of somatic interventions before it can effectively metabolize food. Mm -hmm. Anything you'd like to say about that one? This is one of my, my favorite in some ways, and I think in, is one of the most surprising to people because there is this emphasis on we have to get food into the body in order for the body to function and support cognition. Mm-hmm. And until we do that, we, we can't really address the relationship with the body or in these other things. Like that has to be first. If, the, if, the, if someone's not eating, they don't have the capacity to do anything. And the thing is that eating is actually requires a lot of energy and it requires a lot of regulation. In or It's a very complicated task, especially as an adult where you have to identify hunger cues, you have to, or fullness cues, you have to figure out what you need and what you want. You have to select, prepare it, select it. And that's before you even get to the process of ingestion, right? And that is a hugely um, complicated task. It requires all kinds of coordination of muscles and nerves and, you know, enzymes, you know, so there's a lot there. And sometimes we have to resource the body so that it is available to do this complicated task, right? If we haven't helped somebody through other sensory inputs, sometimes we have to nourish the body through other sensory input so that it is ready to eat. 
We have to nourish it through sound, through smell, through touch, through movement, through relationship. Before the body can orient to a state of safety where there is bottom-up support for the process of taking in food, right? Mm-hmm. We, we were talking with um, some colleagues about, you know, really basically what we're trying to teach people is, is how to be a mammal, right? That like, <laughs> and, right, and we came up with this acronym, Hot BAM, right? This is all about, you know, in order to be a mammal, you, ha- you have to have relationships, safe relationships in order to survive, in order to take in food, right? That's that's at the very core of who we are. So if we aren't nourishing the being, they can't take in food. Hmm. Yeah, I'm thinking of, oh, those poor monkeys, the Harlow monkeys. Exactly, I know, right? Yeah. It just, you, you know, you see them, like, and what did the they connection. need? The other yeah. nourishment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they needed the other nourishment to thrive. Mm-hmm. You can, yeah. How to be a mammal too is going to be one of my new catchphrases. <laughs> I often talk about, I'm a big like eco-psychology person, love all of that. And so just, yeah, that we are animals. We're in these animal bodies and there's so much in just our modern world and certainly even in modern psychotherapy that that makes us sort of forget that, <laughs> right? how central that is. Right, right. I think I, I was kind of referring to that earlier. It's like this very kind of Western model of psychology so emphasizes the individual self and, and Maslow's hierarchy that, that, that exalts self-actualization as though like, as though you can get your basic needs met without relationship. You know, it's just, it's like, no, you need love and community yeah. and, and like, and, and, uh, that that's what nourishes the self. I don't know. It just, so I'm going to, I have to mention this to y'all and I'll put it in the show notes. Somebody just sent this to me like yesterday and it blew my mind. Um, there's, I think she's a, a, a psychologist. She's, um, Han Ren is her name on Instagram, and she shared this video about how Maslow actually spent time. I can't remember the name of the tribe, but with the tribe, you saw this. I saw heard of this. Yeah, Yeah. that that the that actually the whole he he distorted their hierarchy and kind of took it without really crediting it. And that self actualization was not at the top. That it's okay. Let me get myself kind of taken care of so that I can then show up in my community. And that's really right. the higher level. Right, right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It really does. <laughs> it, and it's almost like, let's just take it out of the triangle thing to begin mm-hmm. with. Like, I'm not sure a yeah. triangle works. It's like there's like a tree other... with some roots, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. Let's change the yeah. geometry of it as well as the... Right. And the... I think that it's a good kind of uh, segue into one of the things that I appreciate um, that you said as we were kind of preparing for this, this conversation is that 
your model also explores the many variations of attachment systems. So not just family of origin, not just one-on-one -on -one relationship, but biological, cultural, group, community, society, political. So Absolutely. I would love to hear just kind of how you view um, those intersecting layers and or how you sort of weave that into embodied recovery. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Go ahead, start. Okay. So I think there's a couple of, of things. Um, I'm trying to, trying to think of where to, where to start. And this is always the challenge of taking something that's very spherical and, sure. and getting it into a linear, the, the linear um, geometry of, of words and language. So Give me a, um, a moment. Sure. And I also asked a very broad question. So. Well, well, I, you know, I think in a nutshell, and this is like an oversimplification, is that recognizing that our, our individual physiology that is um, the foundation of our bottom-up support for a relationship with food, right? Um, is impacted by relationship, right? And that relationship, the impact on our nervous system is, is similar whether the relationship is a, a microbiological relationship, a, in, a single interpersonal relationship, right? Do I feel safe? That okay, maybe this is a, a way to explain it too, is that safety is necessary for the regulation that supports digestion and a, and, a, and a robust relationship with food, what we might call normative eating, right? Safety is not the same as an absence of danger. And we often will hear people say that they do things to feel safe when actually what they're describing is feeling protected. That, that what they're doing is separating themselves from something that feels dangerous. That's not the same as feeling safe. Feeling safe is being able to connect with something that is resonant, that is supportive, that is nourishing and nurturing, right? And we need both. Now, the thing that we connect with can be God, our breath, a tree, a person, a song, whatever feels resonant and nourishing. Mm -hmm. The danger that we have to protect ourselves from can be, um, sometimes it can be our own, like, autoimmune systems, right? Like sometimes it feels like our body is the, is the thing that's dangerous to us. And that's a challenge, right? But it can be, it can be um, a person. It can be an institution. It can be a dogma, a faith community that, that is harmful, is something that wants to diminish our wholeness as opposed to support it, right? And so that brings us, and, and 
when we feel the presence of danger, we are going to separate from from that relationship and often from ourselves, the part of us that has to stay in the presence of that threat, we're going to disembody from that, right? So a very simple way of thinking about that is like, I sprained my ankle when I was nine. There was a lot of pain there. I left that part of my body and I've been working my way back into that injury, right? Like into that space. I left the part that hurts. When I am, when, when I speak to people who are just solely cognitive about things, right? I know that there's, there's this whole way of me being in the world that I can't bring in there, or it's just going to be, it's not welcomed. And it, and it's not only it's not welcomed, it sometimes is ridiculed, right? So I disembody from that. Um, there are places where I won't, I won't go if I feel like the institutions don't, aren't safe. They may not be harmful, but they may not be actually safe. And I think this is where, um, people we might describe as marginalized communities, um, people who experience a lot of microaggressions right? The message is there's not a place for me here, right? And, um, you know, I think this practice of people, um, people sharing their pronouns, it makes it safe for people who have pronouns that are not, have not been recognized in the past. It's like, oh, you're welcoming me right? It's not that you would be necessarily dangerous, but are you safe? And safety is required for embodiment. And embodiment is a part of empowerment, right? When we are disempowered, we are disembodied. Yeah. Paula, anything that you want to add to that? Um, The one thing I might add is more in the context of... um, epigenetics and that um, Mm -hmm. we are impacted by, so sometimes the unsafe is in our DNA. Sometimes the unsafe is because our ancestors experienced something and then it's decontextualized, right? And that's a lot of what um, the book, My Grandmother's Hands by Resma Kenna's about is right. This de- decontextualization of um, of trauma, mm-hmm. yeah. And so our training names that, mm-hmm. and and begins to open up the door to to think about um, why why we disembody, and and how we have to operate in the world on the outside mm-hmm. for some communities. Um, and then, yeah, how does that impact our relationship with food and our ability to um, to know what we want to eat, know when we're full, know how to digest, mm-hmm. right? Because if we're not in our body, that's hard to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I just imagine that 
anyone who is a part of any marginalized or oppressed group, like there's going to be safety issues there just by existing in the world as they are. Absolutely. So on top of whatever else is going on in the home, whatever epigenetics they're carrying. Um, so I just, yeah, historically, my feeling is that that has not been enough of the conversation in eating disorders. And I think there's people really trying to remedy that. But I'm just glad to know that that that's something that you're you're contextualizing within your model and the way that that you're understanding what's happening with that safety and how that impacts the relationship with food and the ability to nourish. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 Mm. Well, I could keep talking to you both forever, but <laughs> um, I know we have to get on with our days. So I just so appreciate this rich conversation. And before we go, I, want to just open space for whatever you want to share about what you're doing, um, what you've put out into the world. And, and certainly in the show notes, I'll link to some of the books you've contributed to. I hope there's an embodied recovery book coming in the future um, and the website with all the training info too. Mm -hmm. So tell us what you want to share. Sure. Well, if, if people are interested in joining us in a training, we have gone online we've jumped into the online community. So we have um, an, our introduction class is now an online class that it's on demand. So you can sign up and have a cohort with people all over the world mm -hmm. and move through that cohort within a period about a two or three month period that you spend time together. Um, and then we have a two day, I'm sorry, we have a phase two of our training, which is um, in two five-day modules and so those that are already trained um, we are, we've moved that phase of our training and combined smaller modules to make it one longer one and so that's going to be coming up towards um, the end of 2021 and that is local in North Carolina and then we're in the process of developing phase three which is a certification in embodied recovery where there'll be opportunities to dive deeper into some of the pieces that we teach in the model. Yeah. Sensory yeah. integration and yeah. Things like yeah. That. We're really excited about some of those and um, we're going to be collaborating with, um, with other providers and people who are kind of experts in the fields around sensory processing and autism. We, we're going to be, and um reflexes and just different somatic safe practices. sound protocol safe sound. yeah yeah so it's going to be really yeah. that's going to be really exciting but that's in development yeah wow i just Great. want to thank you for doing this and for you know just continuing to broaden the conversation i think that that's really what what we what what we're really um wanting is just to expand the conversation to have a seat at the table so that we can we can bring these things into consideration and so appreciate you helping us do that wonderful and people also make sure to check out their website and the resources page there's, there's so many great links to books and videos and podcast interviews on all these topics for people who want to dig deeper so mm -hmm. thank you so much for being here and can't wait for level two
I hope you enjoyed this episode. And if you feel moved to share it with someone you think would love it, that would mean so much to me. For show notes, head over to GaiaCenter.co and follow us on Instagram at the Gaia Center and at Val K. Martin, V-A-L-K-A-Y Martin. And if you're into animal stuff and delicious vegan food, be sure to check out my other podcast, Vegan and Vibrant. See you next time.